Longtime listeners, you know the drill. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving members. Just search for the show's name. We have been overwhelmed and are very grateful to all of you who signed up for our brand spanking new Patreon, which you'll find online at patreon.com forward slash the paranoid strain. In fact, we were so grateful that we decided we wanted to give everyone who signed up a small token of our appreciation, even if doing so is going to take us a little while. Anyway, here's the deal. Everyone who has signed up for the Patreon already at any tier and anyone going forward who signs up for $5 or more, we're going to thank you individually on an upcoming episode using either your name or a pseudonym created by you or me and embroiling you in a conspiracy theory that I'll make up. Rather than explain this concept any further, we'll just jump straight into our first call-out, longtime listener and Facebook group member Miriam Dornauer, who is trying to prove once and for all that her adopted homeland of Finland was named that because it was secretly founded by an ancient race of multidimensional land sharks. If you'd like us to make up some conspiracy bullshit about you, we invite you to sign up at, once again, patreon.com forward slash the paranoid strain. We deeply appreciate those who give, but we also truly appreciate you simply for listening. So, like, no pressure. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line. Tell us what you think of the show. We're open to suggestions, criticisms, and recipes. Send them all to the paranoid strain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Recall earlier when we mentioned Hal Lindsey's popular books, including the runway bestseller, The Late Great Planet Earth, which dramatized the imminent Revelation-style end of the world that was going to transpire during the 70s, and then the 80s, the 90s, and then the year 2000, as revealed by his recalcitrant subsequent efforts. Who are you going to believe about the end of the world, baby? Tim LaHaye or your lying eyes? Exactly. But in 1995, the torch of evangelical potboiler fear-mongering was passed from Lindsay to the daring duo of pastor Tim LaHaye and Christian author Jerry B. Jenkins, who issued the first of what would eventually become a 16-novel series bringing to life the pre-millennialist vision of the end times in a modern American, but also grudgingly global, context. To deliver the kind of quality content you deserve, I of course read all 16 of these novels, and we will now begin my eight-hour in-depth satire of their contents. Shh! Don't worry, everyone. He's not going to do that. You think Dana would let him do that to you? Never. Jesuit? Do not give me that book. Tell the nice people the truth. I didn't read any of the books. What was that? Speak up, please. I didn't read a single one of those evangelical doorstops. I mean, how much spare time do you think I have? But I did, in fact, watch both film versions of the first novel, The Eponymous, Left Behind. 
both? They make two versions of this thing? Oh, yeah. And normally connoisseurs of bad acting would be excited that the year 2000 version stars wooden former teen heartthrob turned anti-evolution activist Kirk Cameron. But that's not the best bad acting news? It appears that it's not, because the 2014 one stars Nicholas fucking Cage. The unbearable weight of massive talent, vampires kiss face-off, Mandy, Bat Lieutenant, Porter Call, New Orleans, Sailor and Wild at Heart, Wickerman, the Bees, Oh God, Not the Bees, Nicholas Cage? Or, I barely read the script and took this job exclusively to pay back taxes on my T-Rex gold purchase, Nicholas Cage. Alas, it's definitely the latter, with Cage taking on the dull role of an irreligious, unfaithful airline pilot. I think what he's going for is quietly conflicted, mature Gregory Peck figure, but mostly he just looks dazed or tired. The Cage version is limp, but a competently made, professional-looking, low-budget film that appears to have been aimed at a mainstream audience, and it takes liberties with the plot that the presumably more faithful earlier film version doesn't. So we'll briefly discuss the later film first, before feasting on the revelation fest that is the Cameron epic. In this story, we have three main characters— Cage's pilot, his disaffected adult daughter who is visiting home for her wayward dad's birthday, and a bearded young bohunk. Chad Michael Murray. Who plays a cable news correspondent who meet-cutes Cage's daughter at the airport after she discovers her father's impending infidelity. Bohunk is on Cage's flight to London. Midway through, though, a bunch of people on the plane disappear, leaving their clothes in their seats. Turns out the same thing is happening everywhere, as Cage's daughter discovers at a mall when she hugs her little brother and he vanishes, leaving her holding only his Oshkosh dungarees. This rendition of the Christian Rapture is where they spend most of the non-Cage portion of their 16 million budget, as we see driverless cars smashing through the windows of the mall, some planes dropping out of the sky with only marginally terrible CGI, etc., etc. When we return to Cage's plane, he discovers his co-pilot is among the disappeared, And he struggles to make contact with air traffic control because, I guess those guys were all really religious or something? Anyway, he can't reach anyone, and meanwhile his not-good-enough-for-Jesus remaining passengers do that movie thing where somehow they live in a world where nobody on the plane has ever heard of the Rapture or the Book of Revelation, in spite of the billions of hours of religious TV and radio they have no doubt passively absorbed. Anyway, they argue about the plausibility of a bunch of obviously wrong solutions before someone finally says, no, but Jesus, and then everyone starts to realize they're stuck on Earth for the bad Antichrist stuff that's obviously coming soon. The mom got raptured too. Discovering this, Cage's daughter wanders into a church where the minister's congregation has flown up to meet the Lord in the air. But the minister himself was left behind because he didn't really believe all the shit he said. He just pretended. He helps Cage's daughter understand that the world's about to get real, real fucked up for the next few years, again quoting our favorite book of the Bible. In reaction, she decides to kill herself, but changes her mind when she gets her dad and Beardo's distress call, opting instead to clear a highway so they can make an emergency landing. If this all doesn't sound great, that's because it isn't. Leah Thompson appears to be literally unconscious at times as she sleepwalks through her role as the pilot's innocent, Christ-fearing, soon-raptured wife. Actress Chloe Steele, as the daughter, tries gamely to introduce some emotional stakes to this dreck, and Murray offers some very tame Jesus-approved sex appeal. But just like Cage's plane, the whole thing's going down in flames. The film earned a coveted 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Truly a cinematic achievement. Yes, indeed. So, Let's turn back to the much more overtly religious, probably faithful to the source material, Kirk Cameron version. 
Again, didn't read the book. Honestly, don't feel bad about it. Before we discuss this movie, he insists that I mention that Kirk Cameron, in addition to being known for his mediocre 1980s sitcom acting and his one-time teen-beat heartthrob status for millions of girls Jesuit's age, has spent most of the succeeding decades trying to bring people to Christ by proving that basic science isn't true. He is, of course, a dedicated creationist apologist and has lent his name to some astonishingly stupid presentations. None more so than this, which against incredibly strong competition, may in fact be the most legendarily stupid creationist video in existence. The one in which Cameron and fellow fundamentalist anti-evolution activist Ray Comfort explained their single fruit approach to refuting Darwin's satanic theory. Learned that when you really look at the evidence, the truth is it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to believe in God. You've really got to ignore the facts. Uh, it's funny how we equate the word atheism with intellectual. Yeah. It's the exact opposite. That's right. Behold the atheist's nightmare. Now, if you study a well-made banana, you'll find on the far side there are three ridges. On the close side, two ridges. If you get your hand ready to grip a banana, you'll find on the far side there are three grooves. On the close side, two grooves. The banana and the hand are perfectly made one for the other. You'll find the maker of the banana, Almighty God, has made it with a non-slip surface. It has outward indicators of inward contents. Green, too early. Yellow, just right. Black, too late. Now, if you go to the top of the banana, you'll find, as with the soda can makers, they placed a tab at the top. So God has placed a tab at the top. When you pull the tab, the contents don't squirt in your face. You'll find the wrapper, which is biodegradable, has perforations. Notice how gracefully it sits over the human hand. Notice has a point at the top for ease of entry. It's just the right shape for the human mouth. It's chewy, easy to digest, and it's even curved toward the face to make the whole process so much easier. Seriously, Kirk, the whole of creation testifies to the genius of God's creative oh, hand. It absolutely does. You think, think of the human eye. Uh, we simply has... cannot allow ourselves to forget the classics, Dana. So serving the Lord is job one for Mr. Cameron, and producing a watchable film is like, I don't know, job five? Six? The plot of Left Behind 2000 is significantly more intricate than the Cage version. In this one, Cameron's rendition of the cable news guy, whose name in both versions, we should you not, is Buck Williams. Is that really a dumber name than Wolf Blitzer, though? Yeah. Old Buck got himself a hell of a scoop by being on the ground in Israel as a coalition of unspecified Arab states launched their combined air forces toward the Jewish homeland. It looks like the Israeli Air Force never sleeps. Those are not our planes. Not from that direction. Let's take cover. Only for them to fall out of the sky in balls of fire because Jesus threw thunderbolts or some shit. In this version, the cheating pilot is seen experiencing domestic turmoil before his fateful rapture flight, which instead of dominating the running time is a relatively brief Act One-only event here. Because there's so golding much prophecy to prophesy. In the meantime, Brick Manparts hears from one of his sources, Dirk Burton. Another name that makes Jesuit giggle. 
Dirk meets with him in a total deep-throat Watergate parking garage scenario and blathers a seemingly insane plan that you'll be shocked to learn turns out to be really true. Meet me at the usual spot. Hey. The world's in danger, Buck. All of us. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Dirk, just calm down. Knock it down a couple thousand RPMs. What's the matter? It's Catherine. I got the file. He thought it was locked, but I got it. I got in. What do you know about Rosenzweig? Dirk, what are you talking about? Don't you see? I'm Rosenzweig. The formula. Come see, it's, it's sealed so clear. What is? What is? The attack. The attack. The, the bombers exploded. The flight's exploding. You see? See, it's all, it's, all, it's, all, it's, all, it's all fitting together now. I see it. Because they've been behind this whole thing from the very beginning. The research grants. The, the, the trust funds. And then, there, and then there's the currency. That's the next step. You see? The, the, the dollar, the, the pound, the yen, the euro. They're going to make it all into one. One. And, don't you see, Buck? Don't you see? It's always about the money, isn't it? What do you know about life? Come on, he must have said something. Come on. Come on. Come on. Think! Think, Buck! Think! After the rapture, our pilot lands normally at an airport, but of course everything else is going haywire across the globe since a bunch of people who were probably not a lot of fun at parties have suddenly all vanished. The U.S. president... And maybe all world leaders? It's unclear. ...died in some sort of attack and were introduced to an Eastern European smoothie named Nikolai Carpathia, who's also the Secretary General of the U.N., We first see him issuing a calming speech to the world, so we're pretty sure he's bad news from the jump. Brant Goodlove hitches a ride with the pilot, who has a hookup for the only flight cleared to head back to New York. At this point, the narrative splits. In the boring half, the pilot gradually finds out the Bible is real and gives himself over to Jesus, while his daughter follows a similar path from the other movie, except in this one she accepts the Lord instead of trying to kill herself. And in this version, the left-behind unbelieving pastor finds out what's really going down when he and the very bored audience, listens to a VHS left behind by an already raptured senior pastor and true believer. This tape offers a very clear explication of the secret behind their predicament. Hello, I'm Pastor Vernon Billings of the New Hope Village Church. If you're watching this tape, you are no doubt confused. Let me encourage you. Your loved ones, your children, your friends, and your acquaintances have not been snatched away by some evil force or some invasion from outer space. You're watching this tape because millions of people have disappeared. Babies and children, still innocent in God's eyes, have vanished. There is much to fear, but not for those who are missing. Because they have placed their faith in Christ alone for salvation. They have been taken to heaven by Jesus himself. Our characters are super duper fucked because they're in the middle of the plot of the Book of Revelation. But the real action in the year 2000 version is with Kirk Cameron's barred tooth chip as he uses his reporting skills and, eventually, the super insight powers God grants him after he gets saved to realize that the insidious bankers we've followed throughout the movie are simply pawns of the real Antichrist, none other than the suavely accented foreigner who runs the UN. You don't say. Yeah. Bolt God Saves is even in the room when Nikolai Carpathia does his heel turn and declares a one-world government, assigning ten flunkies to be his sub-leaders, bringing peace to the world. But Blip Hubastank knows the truth. We are about to turn this planet into a paradise. Unimaginable. Only a few short weeks ago. Ten oasis regions, where each delegate is given complete control over his respective area true global community, a true world of peace. This marks the beginning of our seven years of peace. 
of seven years. This marks the beginning of the rise of the Antichrist. He will control ten kingdoms, which in turn will control the world. The Antichrist will sit in the temple of God and he will declare to the whole world that he is God. Upon each of you, I grant all the power and authority due to your new positions. You are now kings and queens in your own lands, bringing prosperity and plenty to your people. All in my name. Then the newly revealed Antichrist caps the two bankers. We made you, Nikolai. You're our creation. I see. Give me your sidearm. So begins an object lesson in leadership. On your knees, Jonathan. No. No, I will do no such thing. hypnotizes the assembled potentates into believing it was instead a murder-suicide, and the only person who's free from his spell as the meeting ends is none other than Brack Christfan. As we conclude, the pilot, his daughter, and the newly believing left-behind pastor are joined by Kirk Bananahand in church as they prepare to endure the prophesied seven years of bad vibes from Satan's right-hand man. The End. Why did we spend all the time going over a movie that only you, Kirk Cameron's mom, and the Lord Jesus remembers? Well, mostly because the Left Behind books, and in fact the Cameron version of the movie, which was filming as the 90s ended, are prime examples of the era's fascination with both religious and secular end-of-the-world scenarios. Want further proof? Well, as Greer reminded me in his book, the highways of my youth were dotted with cars featuring bumper stickers sporting slogans like Warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unoccupied. Not to say it ended with the millennium, of course. In 2012, when Greer's book was written, the internet had empowered a whole new type of business designed to capitalize on a combination of believers' zeal and the American pastime of pampering our pets. Quote, A handful of ingenious promoters are currently offering rapture pet care services. In exchange for cash up front, they'll take in the pets of believers when they're whisked away to meet Jesus in the clouds. Now that, my friends, is a sweet grift. As I mentioned, this mania wasn't limited to the religious. Plenty of the credulous in the premillennial hysteria were obsessed with certain of the more obscure pronouncements of 16th century self-promoter and supposed future seer Nostradamus. For example, In the year 1999 and seven months, from the sky will come a great king of terror, to resuscitate the great king of Angoulême, before and after Mars reigns at his will. Greer lists this as one of a number of predictions that were supposed to come to pass by July of 99, though this hoopla was eventually drowned out by the Y2K problem. A real thing, but arguably one that was accompanied by an overreaction slash freakout that overstated the scale of the problem. Of course, when No Asteroid or Reign of Nukes, the predictors of Nostradamian doom, actually appeared, the usual suspects just moved on to the supposed 2012 Mayan end of the world. And we all know how that worked out. Greer points out that the idea of immediacy is really the addictive element of the apocalypse for most who buy into the meme. People like believing it because it's exciting. Even though, as he also points out, the vast majority of those who claim to believe the end is coming soon 
sure don't live like it. I mean, if you really believe, why do you have a 401k? The point is to buy into something that will soon prove you right and smart, and everyone who disagreed as wrong and dumb. And possibly on fire. And what could be more QAnon-friendly than that idea? Okay, so we've covered the Book of Revelation and how it ties to both the millennialism of the 1990s and the QAnon movement. But as I promised, I want to dive a little deeper into one of the few topics I am actually a world expert on. What it was like to be a young white American man obsessively fascinated by those with weird beliefs swimming through the culture of the mid-1990s. As I noted earlier, many see this era as a decade of what, from our vantage point, looked like some pretty first-world problems. For example, one of the political issues we were dealing with at the time, this is absolutely true, was whether we should pay the U.S. national debt all the way down or just part of the way down. Yeah, sounds rough. From the 50,000-foot view, it was a pretty rosy time for Americans. The Soviets had collapsed, the consumer internet had just gotten going, the U.S. wasn't involved in any long-draining ground wars, nobody was attacking the Capitol building because their guy didn't win even though he claimed he did, we had two big towers standing on the southern tip of Manhattan. You get it. Comparatively, times were fat and happy. And that's all true, but there was an undercurrent of unease from that impending calendar changeover to a new millennium that caused the daffier elements of our culture to start vibrating on a weird frequency that it seems to me has carried through to the QAnon of the present. So, let's introduce your mostly reliable narrator, as I have Dana, paint you a picture in words. Imagine, if you will, a recent graduate of a reasonably prestigious university, whiling away his early 20s, tooling around the city of his birth, the already decidedly odd New Orleans. No particular career aims, but nagged by the internal voice reminding him that he should probably find some. Living in the kind of squalor that only a girlfriendless early 20s male can create, much less thrive in. Wildly underemployed at a dead-end swing shift job that allows him to party at night with slightly younger, still unmatriculated college friends. Parents whose gentle encouragements to figure out something to do with himself are becoming less gentle as the months pass. Oh, and somehow, in spite of all of this, he manages to be almost stunningly intellectually arrogant, with nothing at all to show for it. Yikes. That was harsh also fair. Fun fact, the job in question was, I shit you not, proofreading business cards for like seven bucks an hour on the swing shift. Yes, I was a college graduate. Yes, it was a good economy. Clearly, I could have found a job and started a career, but I didn't, for at least a couple years. I can't really explain why, except to say, live in the dream. That confession was included so you could understand, I had a lot of time on my hands. And most of my waking hours, given that I worked from early afternoon to 10 in the p.m., tended toward the nocturnal. So given my obsessions, which have remained remarkably constant in the ensuing nearly 30 years, that means I not only listened to just an inordinate amount of Art Bell's Coast to Coast show on my car's radio. You have the solemn word of the paranoid strain that we will finally do our big Art Bell extravaganza at some point during our next major topic, which is very broadly about UFOs. But now is not the time to peel the onion of Jesuit's AP fascination. No, this particular digression has more to do with the other weird shit I listened to in my car at the time. Oh, let me assure you, if you took a ride in mid to late 90s Jesuit's car, you were going to hear some weird shit. Abso-fucking-lutely. For example, during my college years, there was a local AM radio host who billed himself as Ron the Bounty Hunter. In other words, Ron Hunter. 
The guy always seemed like he was thrust into the role of evening conspiracy show host simply because it was the only slot available, and he always seemed totally out of his element in long-form radio. I have been, to my shame, unable to find any audio of the man in action on WSMB-AM from the period I recall. Though in researching for this episode, I discovered he had a fascinatingly long and sordid past before I ever ran into him. In brief, he went from late 70s Chicago TV news anchor Wunderkind to New Orleans AM radio has-been over the course of 20 years of seemingly unremitting failure, in the midst of which he was suspected, though cleared, in his wife's suicide, which transpired hours after she had called into her husband's radio show to seek advice from the therapist Ron was interviewing about the many sexual problems in their marriage. There's a Chicago Tribune How Have the Mighty Fallen article about the guy that you can and should Google, but for young Jesuit, he was just a sort of amateurish JFK assassination and anti-government conspiracy hack. The Pabst Blue Ribbon that would barely slake my conspiracy thirst as I whiled away the hours, waiting for the single malt scotch that appeared in my hand when the master signed on from his home broadcasting station in the high desert. From the high desert and the great American Southwest, I bid you all good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be in God's great universe. But Ron Hunter's unique backstory aside, the point is that back in the 1990s, there was enough interest in conspiracy theories to support a daily early evening radio show in a competitive and reasonably large urban market, however incompetently that show may have been executed. Besides second-rate conspiracists, there was a whole other lane of listening as well. As his friends quickly learned to their chagrin when bumming a ride. That is, the more specifically, avowedly fundamentalist religious content available to the discerning, ironic asshole radio listener. During the daytime hours, of course, there was the Christian rock station, from which I learned important lessons like, they don't serve breakfast in hell. In the- Or that what we as a nation need are the old, old stories. So tell me again of the old, old stories. Tell me again of the faithful who walked in the lion's den and the fiery furnace of Noah and rainbows and donkeys that talked at all. Or this succinct syllogism demonstrating, once and for all, that evolution just isn't true. Take that, modern science. But after graduation, my refined tastes turned toward the most batshit insane prophetic religious programming I could find. And in my market, the cream of the crop were Newswatch Magazine with David J. Smith and the Prophecy Club, hosted by Stan and Leslie Johnson. Each was absolutely dedicated to the proposition that the end was coming soon, like the next presidential administration soon, based on the way they talked, though nobody was dumb enough to pick a date like those 19th century fail prophets. Just trust me, though, there was no question these hosts would have been shocked at the time to learn that we were still chugging along in our satanic ways almost 30 years later. Let's examine each in turn. Stan Johnson of the Prophecy Club is the Ned Flanders of the eschatology world. I thought this way back in the 1990s when I had only heard him on the radio simply because of the nasality of his vocal tone. 
But in researching this show and finally seeing a picture of the man himself, holy shit, the resemblance is uncanny. Look him up. I'm saying if you gave him a jaundiced complexion, Stan Johnson would be a shoe-in to deliver a few Hydley-ho neighborinos in a hypothetical live-action Simpsons movie. And by the way, we wouldn't put it past Disney to actually do that. The same site where I found Johnson's headshot diddly-oodly offers a capsule biography of how the man, and let's not forget his partner in prophecy, wife Leslie Johnson, got started in this racket. Short version, Stan was a humble businessman when in 1993 he started doing a periodic 15-minute prophecy show in his home market of Topeka, Kansas. Soon the response and demand was so strong that he quit his worldly efforts and turned instead to full-time ministry. In the years since I was a regular listener, Stan and Leslie have apparently founded their own church. You can safely assume Jesuit will attend services next time he's in the area. The main focus of the Prophecy Club is... Well, why don't I let the man himself tell you from this 2015 episode? Essentially, the purpose of the Prophecy Club is to tell America that she is under judgment, that America will be attacked by Russia and will be defeated in the early days of World War III. The second point is to tell the world that you are in the last days and you are in the middle of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, whether you know it or not or like it or not, and that if you want to have eternal life, you must stop sinning now, repent, and turn to Jesus with your whole heart. The dedicated listener will very quickly also be reminded that the secondary purpose of the show is begging for money. Now, if that is a message that you can get behind, then I'm going to ask you to become a monthly supporter. Yes, We need your donations. We need them today. But more than we need them just today, we need them each month to stand with us. When you give to a ministry, then the Bible says that God will repay. So I'm going to pray that God right now, as you're hearing this, will speak to your heart to support us monthly and even to speak the amount for you to support monthly. Lord, I ask you, to speak to the hearts of those people. So far, it sounds pretty much like every other televangelist I've ever had the misfortune to see or hear. Why are you bringing up this one in particular? First of all, because the show is positively obsessed with the book of Revelation. And though the tenor of the 1990s shows, what I like to think of as the show's classic period, Oh dear. The classic period definitely pointed toward the big numerical changeover to the year 2000 as the time when all the shit was going to go down. However, to give Stan and Leslie the credit they deserve, they have been able to keep the gravy train running all the way up to the present day, long after the mood of the nation moved on from believing the end of all things was around the corner. Part of this staying power comes down to the fact that God just keeps showing Stan neat new stuff. For example, here's a quote from the website relating exciting, if deeply confusing, relatively recent updates from the Almighty directly to our hero. In 2017, Stan memorized the book of Revelation in which he received 30 revelations and two visions. God showed him the word firstfruits is a secret door which links the Feast of Leviticus to the prophecies of Revelation, allowing the end-time events to be placed in chronological order. Finally. I had been placing end-time events in all kinds of orders. Alphabetical, numerical, by cinematographer's last name, clockwise. As we can see, joining the Prophecy Club pretty much pays for itself, people. 
The core of the Johnson's ministry is a series of prophecies delivered long ago by a now-dead, then-exiled Romanian named Dimitri Dudeman. I am not going to let Jesuit make poop jokes about this man's last name. Spoil sport. Anyway, as near as I can tell, Stan and co. are the only folks who take this guy seriously, and Stan's been hyping Dimitri's future predictions for close to 30 years now, so I owe it to you to provide at least a brief overview. Dudeman had been prophesying for decades when he came over to the U.S., but it's in exile that he received his big, earth-shaking message from an angel of the Lord about the future of America, and then passed it on to Stan to disseminate far and wide. Sorry to say, the news isn't good. No, indeedly doodly. It was the same voice, the same angel that had been speaking to him now for over 30 years. Dimitri said, why did you punish me? Why did you bring me to America? What did I do that was so rotten? Why'd you bring me here? I have nowhere to lie my head. I can't understand anybody. I don't have any money. He said, Dimitri, I brought you here to this country because this country will burn. And he showed me all of California and the cities of California and Las Vegas. The angel said, you see what I've shown you? This is Sodom and Gomorrah. And one day it will burn. He showed me another great city. And he said, do you know what city this is? And I said, no. He said, this is New York City. This also is Sodom and Gomorrah, and one day it will burn. He said, I brought you to this country, Dimitri, because I want to wake up a lot of people. I love this country, and I love the people of this country, but this country will burn. I will make great healings among the American people. You will go to television stations, radio stations, and churches. Tell them everything I tell you, and don't try to hide anything, because if you try to hide anything, I will punish you because America will burn. How's America going to burn exactly? The goddamn Ruskies, that's how. He said the Russian spies have discovered where the most powerful nuclear missiles are stored in America. He said it will start with an internal revolution in America, started by the communists. Some of the people will start fighting against the government. The government will be busy with internal problems. Then from the oceans, Russia, Cuba, Nicaragua, Central America... Mexico, and two other countries which I cannot remember will attack. The Russians will bombard the nuclear missiles in America, and America will burn. This story was a tough sell even back in the 90s, when the Russians were a recently deposed international superpower. But Johnson is standing by this shit even now, when it's become especially obvious in the wake of the botched Ukraine invasion that if the Russians ever actually engaged in a straight-up fight with the U.S. Army, they'd last about 15 minutes. But you've got to admire Stan for sticking to his guns all these years, no matter how increasingly implausible this stupid story has become. Wait, he was talking about this back in the 90s when you were listening? Like, he was talking about this Dudeman guy? Dana, he has quoted that exact prophecy about the angel showing Dudeman the cities and then exactly how the Russians and their allies were going to take over on literally every episode I've ever heard. And in all that time, it's never dawned on him that a more sensible explanation would be that Dimitri got high as balls and caught the first half of a 3 a.m. TBS Superstation rerun of Red Dawn, Wolverines! then woke up convinced it had all been dictated to him by an angel. There are further insights. Apparently, the Lord has blessed America specifically because he sent Jews here. He said, I have blessed this country because of the Jews that are here. I have seven million Jews that are here. They haven't tasted war or persecution, and God has blessed them more than anyone else. But here again, the news on that front is bad, as it turns out. And instead of thanking God, they started sinning and doing wickedly. 
Their sins has reached the Holy One, and God will punish them with fire. You see, Israel doesn't recognize the Messiah because they place their trust on the power of the Jews in America. When God will hit America, all of the nations will be terrified. The prophesying continues as we follow the nefarious plans of the victorious anti-America, anti-God forces as they follow the familiar Revelation playbook. Then God will raise up China and Japan and many of the nations. They will defeat the Russians. They'll back the Russians to the gates of Paris where they make a peace treaty. But they make the Russians their leader. Then, by the way, I think that's when they form a world government. Then all the nations with all the Russians as their leader, go against Israel. It's not that they want to, but God makes them. That's the hook in the jaw, Ezekiel 38, verse 4. Israel doesn't have the help of the Jews in America anymore, and in their terror, when they see what is coming, they will call upon the Messiah. Messiah will come to help Israel. Then the church of God will meet him in the clouds. Did he say they attack Israel even though they don't want to? Yeah. God's chosen people have to get blowed up by enemies who don't even want to blow them up because prophecy. There's more to learn. Remember when our scholar, Dr. Ehrman, showed us definitively that Mystery Babylon in Revelation was clearly Rome? Surprise! Wrong! Why did he call it the Mystery Babylon? Tell them because all the nations of the world immigrated to America, and America accepted them. America accepted Buddha, the Devil Church, the Sodomite Church, the Mormon Church, and all kinds of wickedness. America was a Christian nation, but instead of stopping them, they went after their gods. Because of this, he named it the Mystery Babylon. Now, all prophecy-focused evangelicals, in my pretty extensively experienced opinion, (laughs) y'all, he has listened to hundreds and hundreds of hours of the shit, voluntarily. Not to brag. In my experience, all prophecy folks are pretty touchy and self-defensive since so much of what they say never actually happens, and the Bible says that anyone who prophesies and it doesn't come true is a false prophet, which is inconvenient for those in this line of work. Luckily, though, we can be certain that Deuteron is the real deal for one very good reason. And what's that? Because he says an angel told him he would get a bucket of honey, and then he did get a bucket of honey. I would further note that Dudamon himself is the only witness to this B-spit-based verification. Wait, what? Now, so that you know that I truly have been sent by God, tomorrow at 9 o'clock, someone will come and give you a bed. At 10.30, someone will come and pay your rent. At noon, someone will bring you a car and a bucket of honey. He says, brothers, it happened exactly as the angel said. At 9 o'clock, someone rang my doorbell and said, I brought you a bed. I could not sleep all night long. God told me that you were from Romania and that you need a bed. Come and help me unload it. And at 10.30, someone else rang my doorbell and handed me a check for $500 and said, God told me to bring you $500. And at noon, someone rang my doorbell and handed me the keys to a car. I went and opened the car door. Sitting in the front seat was a bucket of honey. All exactly as God said. <laughs> 